0: Live for a session sometime. You can join our weekly Control the Room facilitation lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques. So you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com/facilitation-lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Petra Ville, a product leadership coach who has been helping product teams boost their skill sets and up their game since 2013. She's also the author of Strong Product People. Welcome to the show, Petra.
1: Ah, Hi, Douglas. Thanks for having me.
0: It's so great to have you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And let's kick things off with hearing a little bit about how you got your start. How did you get into this world of writing about strong product people?
1: (laughs) Actually, it started... Years back, um, as a software developer, it's actually that's how I started in one of Germany's large publishing houses down in southern Germany. But I quickly realized that actually colleagues of mine quickly realized that I had a bit of a talent for the conceptual part of the job and a talent for talking to customers and stakeholders and contractors. And that was really over time something it it needed some time for me to understand that this is a talent and that is something that I could actually make a living out of and first of all i transferred into a project management role because that's what most of the conceptual part of the job was called back then, right? And then slowly over the years, I figured out that there is something else called product management, way more exciting than project management. And that's how I ended up in Northern Germany, I'm currently based in Hamburg, and the first. Yeah, job. So to say that I really took as a product manager was for Germany's large business social network, which is the name is Zing. I was working with them for five and a half years. Then going to a small startup as first of all head of product, and then yeah, working there as an executive, helped them grow the whole engineering and product department. So to say, slowly, slowly, <laughs> making making my way to the top there. It's still, again, a lot of communication how people can better work together a lot of facilitation meeting facilitation was one of my big chunks of work back then a lot of user interviewing still so another facilitation role facilitating user interviews and then more and more of that and then once I spent two years with them the hockey stick was not taking off as we (laughs) would have if we would have hoped the hockey stick to evolve yeah, and then I just decided to try if I can, yeah, run my own business. First of all, did some interims, head of product roles and gigs, and from there, people really like asked me, hey, you know, now our head of product is back from parental leave, for example, but we would like to keep you for some of the coaching because people development is really something that worked well while you were on board, and could you maybe just like stay for some coaching sessions every once in a while, and so. Again, other people pointed out that this is actually where they see a talent and that that there is a need. And so I thought like, yeah, why not actually doing this? And that's what I'm doing since several years now.
0: You know, that's a common trend that I see with so many of my colleagues (laughs) where, you know, it's like we've meandered our way through the world and our peers and our clients have pointed out like, hey, this is awesome what you're doing. And can you kind of stick around and help do this piece?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe that applies for you as well, right?
0: Well, it's interesting. The software development, that's how I got my start. So See? I think it's not all that common for your facilitator to be a software developer, but there's two of us at least. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I can definitely resonate with like this kind of as a software developer being drawn to the conceptual and then also having the EQ strengths yes. or the skills to relate to customers and to peers. And so that kind of the organizational development or the team development kind of stuff. Right. And then that, that's what I think leads us down the road of facilitation which is like how do we get people working together and what's sustainable (laughs) from a pace and things like that
1: yeah so street credibility for sure helped when doing this so being a developer on my own really helped me talking to developers QA folks and all these kind of uh, people because in the beginning my kind of facilitation skills was not super theoretical it was more of a intuitive thing right so it was not like over-rationalizing before actually doing my first meeting facilitations. I just did it. Yeah, but it really helped that I was able to connect to the people. I knew what their struggles are because at least for some miles I walked in their shoes. Mm, And that helped me to get the facilitation role right in the beginning and really adding something to the greater good, so to say. (laughs) Yeah, right from the start.
0: You know, I think it's interesting as well as a software developer, we kind of train our brains to be procedural thinkers. (laughs) And if you apply this procedural thinking to how people get work done or how they talk and collaborate, or or even you're using that logic, when you're listening to people talk, you can kind of find flaws and and what's happening in the room. I don't know if your experience is any different, but early in my career, you're I often it. <laughs> find myself going, you're saying the same thing, but you're disagreeing.
1: Yeah, the logical errors in, in communication, that happens to me a lot. Yeah, It's a bit of reverse engineering sometimes, <laughs> and a lot of debugging while people and groups actually are talking about things.
0: You know, that's really fascinating. I didn't even think about the debugging parallel. But yeah, <laughs> learning how to debug software is like definitely has come in handy when working with and building companies, because often you had to debug the the process you put in place or like the communication. It's like, what's going on here? Let's let's unpack this. Let's like, yeah, do unpack some, so, elimination. Yeah. yeah.
1: And unpack is the word that we use a lot in coaching and in facilitation. Let's unpack that. But actually, it's a bit of a debug mode we're entering then, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I always think about it as like, when people look at me, you know, it's if they haven't heard of that term before and they're kind of deer in the headlights, like, what are you talking about? I always like to tell them, like, well, imagine you got some luggage, right? And you're carrying around a bunch of stuff in, in your luggage and it's all just jammed in there. And uh, we just need to open it up and pull it all apart and inspect it. It's been so long since we packed this bag, we don't even know remember what's in it. So let's, like, pull it all apart and take a look at it and see what was damaged in shipping. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, a nice, that's a nice metaphor. I'm usually using the Matroshka metaphor to really, like... Pull the the matroskas apart and see what's in. Is there another one in the one that we're currently looking at? So that is my oh, yeah. unpacking metaphor. But maybe I like the luggage more because you'd never know what has been damaged. I like that. Well, there's also <laughs> this tangled
0: that. like mess. You know, like how did it get shifted around in transit, right? And like, is it is it the way we left it? Mm, not not not, yeah. not always the case in complex <laughs> Yeah, no, the sh-
1: because the shampoo <laughs> totally ran out, and now everything is covered in shampoo. <laughs>
0: That's totally right. So I want to come to the book here around strong product people, and what would be your summary of what really makes a strong product person stand out? As you know, how would you identify them? Like if you wanted to hire someone that would, you would qualify as a strong product person, like what what's, what what's one of those traits or qualities?
1: Yeah. So. In the book, so first of all, the book is written for people managing product people. So it's actually a product leadership book. And in the book, I'm describing this. Every product leader needs to have their own definition of what makes a great product manager for them, because there is not this one size fits all so many companies. Different organization sizes, different industries we're all operating in. So I strongly encourage the product leads to come up with their own version. But I try to make a really handy book that is really a workbook and helpful in so many situations. I give some examples and I talk about personality traits such as curiosity, adaptability, intellectual horsepower, just to name three. And then I talk a lot about the skills and the competencies that they actually need to acquire along the way. And there is eight buckets, more than 100 questions when it comes to skills. So it's actually because it's a broad role, right? And again, I encourage the people to customize that and see what works in their context. And last but not least, it's a values definition so some companies have company values sometimes you want to add product organization or product team values to the picture but I think that makes a great definition of a good product person so personality traits skills and know-how and then the values that you they hopefully share with the rest of the team or the company.
0: Yeah, I love that. It kind of aligns nicely with one of my philosophies around growing companies, which is rather than thinking of a job title and putting a job description together or even worse, going online is downloading some job description that says like, this is what a product person is or this is what an engineer is or this is what a marketing director is. Instead, thinking about what gap is created in the organization right now because someone left or because we've grown in a new way and thinking about how we fill that gap, right? So your points around customizing it, thinking about what our needs are, what are our values and how do we align with those is really solid.
1: Yeah. And and you have to celebrate some of the talents that the people are actually bringing to the table, right? So I'm teaching so many product folks out there and they're a bit like snowflakes. They're not two ones that are super similar, uh, exactly the same, right? So that's why I think if it's, if you have a too strict definition of what a great product person looks like, then you're really missing out on some great candidates and talent.
0: Yeah, I usually use this kind of really crude, if I really want to break it down into buckets, I like to think about how strong my team is on the kind of product design or just design in general, and then marketing and then also technical aspects. So it's like technical would be the features, the marketing would be what's the go to market on this? Like you know how does how does it like resonate? And then the design is like the aesthetic or, you know, it's the Apple. So it's kind of like Apple, Google, and then, you know, maybe a CPG (laughs) company, right? And if you think about those elements of like how that drives impact a product, it's kind of an interesting rubric to think about how you balance out the org because different people are going to have different flavors of those things. And no one really has all three of those at the same time, I don't think.
1: Sometimes startup founders try to cover all three, but yeah, but then they usually grow out the organization pretty quickly because then it's more about how to scale all of this product organization. And that's usually when they get bored and need to leave because it's a bit like, no, we like the chaos. It's creative chaos. And we really, it's, it's, we need that for innovation. And the rest of the company is like, what the heck? It's super stressful with all the chaos. But sometimes I see it in startup founders or the first PM joining a startup or something like that. They have a bit of all three, which is okay for the early startup phase. But yeah, if you look to bigger companies, then as you were saying... Usually the people don't cover all the three aspects.
0: Yeah, they have to get specialized so that we can get more efficient in our processes or whatever. And plus, it's just hard to find people that, I mean, these are Mm -hmm. rare breeds, right? They're they're founders. They're like some of the early folks that come in and just kind of help get things off the ground and they're hard to find. And I I think that's one place that I've seen groups struggle is they have this vision that like, oh, this person's going to come in and they're going to have all the answers. And it's like, "Mm, what kind of sliver needs to be solved? Let's optimize for that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that is so if they if they're really waiting for this messiahs like person that solves it all. Yeah, that's just not happening. I always encourage teams or product people to do a role description exercise with the teams. So not that they use whatever HR is providing. More that you actually take talk about your talents and what decisions you want to be responsible for and what decisions may not be in your comfort zone. So hopefully somebody else could actually step in and say like, yeah, but I'm totally fine with decisions and on the tech stack or something like that. I think it's super important that teams really have a discussion about that when they start working together or as a team reboot, if they're working together for quite some time, that could be another nice thing to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's really refreshing. And so many teams miss out on these moments to have these kind of meta discussions, right? Because oh. so often we're, we're just so focused on the sprint, especially if you look at Scrum and all the rituals that get documented on how to keep the train running on time. They're so focused on the tasks and the work that's going to get done and not about like me as a human and how I show up and how I integrate and what my unique role is, not some like role as it's defined by some methodology that we might be using. And so I encourage people to step out and sounds like you do too. step out of that fray of just like, you know, creation, and just have some more meta discussions around who we are, and how we're showing up and, you know, the why.
1: Yeah, and actually, the weird thing is, it is kind of baked in the scrum rituals, and we call it the retrospective. It's just like, So many teams are not playful with their retrospective. Mm. So they always do the the same retrospective, keep drop at, and they do this like every other week. But there's so many great retrospective formats out there. And why not having a meta discussion or a timeline retrospective over the last six months or the manual of me retrospective? So if you're working with me, that's the things I want you to know, which would help us to communicate better, work better together. So these formats are out there. Just teams should be a bit more playful with their retrospectives, maybe.
0: That's really cool. So what are some of your go-to I mean you mentioned a couple of examples there kind of quickly, but what is your go-to resource or inspiration to get more playful in, in retrospectives?
1: <laughs> there is actually um, I don't know how to perfectly pronounce this in English. It's called the retro mat, <laughs> which wow, is I okay. can send you the link. <laughs> yeah. And and that is actually a pretty fun thing to 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 play with some retro ideas. They have this format of, I have, let me recall, set the stage then collect information, think about what to do, and settle in on actions or something like this. So it's always kind of these four steps. And then they have different activities um, that they are actually suggesting. And they are pre-configured retros, but you could be really playful and just like trick through various uh, versions, always with pictures, so you get an idea how people even drew the whiteboard or a flip chart or something like this. And that always helps me to think like, oh, what is a nice retro format for this? Because you have this feeling for a group of people and what they might need. So you could think about one or two formats, then actually talk them through and say like what feels right for you. And then that's how I pick the ultimate retro session. So I usually prepare one or two different versions. And we always have the fallbacks of keep, add, drop. <laughs> um <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I love the, for example, I love the Team Radar retro where you have like a little spider web graphic and it has like eight dimensions and I can set the tone and say like, okay, the eight dimensions are how happy is the team with their commitment, their velocity, their ability to adapt to changes. So whatever topic comes up, it can even be like being on time for meetings. So it can be super simple things you put on one of the dimensions. And then it's not about me talking about those things. It's more like inviting the group to talk about those. And if they're happy with this particular topic that I picked, had great successes with that retro. So, yeah.
0: And the team radar is something we've talked about before in the magical meeting stories. So folks can check (laughs) that out. It's already – we've already written about it. That's cool. So, you know, there's something else that you touched on there that I want to talk about a little bit, which is this notion of kind of bringing the group into the decision around – the agenda and what we're going to talk about. And that is actually part of your team radar process. Like they get to pick those pillars or those axes. And you also alluded to this in the making two different agendas for the retrospective and saying which one works better for us. And I think you can take that concept even further too. Like how do we co-create it? Even just like collecting stuff from folks around, hey, what do you, what do you think we should do next week? And that way people come in feeling like they're invested versus trying to get buy-in.
1: Yeah, and that's actually, that's always my goal with whatever I do, it's kind of, it's their journey, it's their work, it's not mine. I'm just here to help them. But with preparing two different retro formats, I'm really helping them because usually the team is focused on getting things done and out of the door and not so much of, oh, what retro could we actually be doing? And these are the 300 retro formats we could be doing, what to pick? and that is more my competence as a facilitator to really have this notion of okay what might be something that could work for this team next week but the ultimate decision is is on them and that really helps to yeah to foster the discussion a bit or to make it more lively than just like me opposing a format on them that's weird and so not me
0: mm nice yeah it's also it's just so exciting and invigorating to have the autonomy to have a say and i want to try this out and you know i don't know people resonate with that and i think it also aligns with something we were talking about in the pre-show chat around coaching versus facilitation right and this this mm-hmm. notion of like how we show up in those different roles and so i want to talk about that for a little bit and just hear your, how you delineate those two roles.
1: So to me, being a coach is the easier role to be in, because then my job is even clearer. I'm usually in a one-on-one situation with my coachee. I just have to read their minds, so to say. <laughs> While I'm with a group facilitating a workshop, there is this group dynamic and there is the individual people in the room that i have to take care of so that's that's a bit more meta uh, more draining <laughs> at least on mm-hmm. my end but some mechanisms are still the same so it's really i try to be in the same lingo than what you were describing so inviting people to unpack things or inviting them to to this retro and to pick one format so that is that is uh, the same Um, No matter if I'm in a coaching role or in a facilitating role, I need to point out things in both settings. So there often is the pink elephant in the room. Nobody's able to talk about it yet. And then I see it as my job to actually point it out to, to be the first person actually put it in a sentence and in words. And then everybody is like, oh, yeah, poo. finally somebody said it. That's actually what we're all feeling since weeks. And the same happens in one-on-one coaching situations a lot. For example, if people are super drained, nearly burned out, and, and I'm the first person to say like, hey, look, we have this coaching relationship for quite some time and today you are in actually not in a good shape you're constantly not finishing your sentences for example that is something that people tend to do when they're totally over the top Mm. and it really already helps them ease some of their pain or getting rid of some of their pressure once i actually was uh, pointing out what i see and then they're like yeah you're the first one actually asking if i'm okay and actually i'm not and that is easier in the one-on-one coaching setup than it would be in a group
0: setup yeah it's interesting too you know as i'm listening it's making me think about like coaching can often be more ongoing or sometimes facilitations are a specific thing that happens like an event so you don't work with the group as long there's certainly group coaching scenarios where you're kind of working Mm -hmm. with a group over and over and over again but as I'm hearing the distinctions, you know, it's definitely feels like there's like coaching that seems like there, there tends to be a little bit more back and forth where the coach is kind of pushing and maybe like encouraging and things, whereas facilitator might be just more in that extraction mode, like creating yeah. the conditions where the yeah. group does this thing and emerge and things the thing. emerge.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that usually is not the case with coaching. So for sure, the coachee has a goal. And we always try to um, shine a light on that goal. And I, I try to help them to unpack the things that are necessary to unpack, to maybe reach that goal, all these kind of things. So still, there is a bit of focus. But if they need this session where they just, like, complain for one hour straight because they have nobody else to complain to, then that's mm-hmm. perfectly fine for me as well, right? So then then I'm kind of happy to listen in. And, yeah. I just like saw Donna Litcho post uh, tweeting today about it's so lonely at the top. And that's why it's so important to have a coach around where you sometimes just can bounce an idea off or say like, hey, I'm busy. Can we just like look at that? Am I really busy or is it just me? Am I not stress resistant or not resilient enough? Or is it really that I have a lot on my plate? So all these kind of conversations are way easier if you have a counterpart and if that is a coach, then it's even nicer, right? Yeah. And in in facilitation, you you right, you you have this goal for the session. Usually, it's a workshop. You want get the the, the people get to work together. Usually, <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of a different setting and goal.
0: You know, I think in both cases, this notion that you mentioned around speaking the truth. You know, the things mm-hmm. that no one else wants to speak and. I think it probably just surfaces a little different than if if you have a, if you're Mm -hmm. like a month, three months into a one-on-one coaching relationship, you might speak that truth a little different than if you're in front of a group of 10 people. And something that surfaced for me when we were chatting and you were giving some examples of some stuff that was coming up for you recently, it was the language and the prompts that you were using. And I think that's so core to being a good coach and a great facilitator is the, the questions and prompts and how we frame stuff for people. And, you know, specifically I, I jotted down, you were saying things like should we or can I help you with or I have a notion. So it's like kind of these really <laughs> soft ways of, of leaning, like just kind of like nudging at this thing to see how many people are impacted by that.
1: The question is how much they want to open up in this situation and i l- want to leave this decision really with the coachy, because i don't want to be intrusive or intimidate them in any way so it's really like i ask them if they want my help on something and if they're happy to unpack something so for example if i have this notion that they're super stressed out today i'm pointing this out i have this notion <laughs> So that's what I usually would be saying. And then it's more of an invitation. And if they are if they do want to talk about this in this particular session, I'm happy to do so. I was mentioning this in our pre-conversation as well, right? So it still requires a bit bravery on my end. And I always need to take all of my courage to really point these things out. <laughs> because I think it's just not something that human beings enjoy doing, right? So if somebody else is suffering and it looks like more a personal thing or some something they're dealing with, then it is hard to actually ask like, hey, I see you're suffering. Do you want to talk about that? And if they say yes, then you have to unpack all these things. And you as a coach have no clue what comes after that question. <laughs> because mm-hmm. it sometimes is super easy stuff, but it can be a can of worms, so to say. And then you're opening Pandora's box and it takes you another two hours to actually put some things back in the box and send them off for another week or two. That is not an easy thing. And that's why language is important. And it's way harder if you do it not in your first language, so to say, because I'm, mm. most of the coachings I'm doing, I'm obviously doing them in English, and it's way easier to do it in German, for example, in my case.
0: Yeah, that's uh, not something I have to face in my practice, but I can I can relate to, to that being difficult for sure. And certainly this moment of bravery really resonated with me because we often talk about the importance of leaning into conflict. Because Um, as facilitators, we just ignore the conflict. Then we really miss the opportunity to to show up in maybe the most important way that we can show up and provide the real benefits that their client's seeking. Because if we just kind of ignore it, then it's the status quo that they always are experiencing versus – potentially having a breakthrough. But to your point, we can't force it. The consent has to be there. People have to be willing to go there.
1: But it's interesting. So you would say it's exactly the same for you. So it takes this moment of, okay, now somebody has to say it. I will be the one. I now point out this little elephant in the room.
0: You know, it's interesting. It depends on the moment. I don't always point it out. Sometimes I might say, I'm sensing some tension in the room. (laughs) Yeah. Because maybe that is enough of an invitation for someone to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. And then if no one says anything, then it's like, is everyone okay? Or are we? is it okay moving on? And that might be just, a, just enough to say someone to say, no, maybe we should talk about this. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. and it just depends. Like the more I know the team, the more I know, should I push on this or, but certainly the softer you just get making those openings, especially if you're not sure and they're ready. Then just, mo- yeah. just lean into it. It doesn't mean, like, bulldoze it. <laughs> just, just like, nudge it, <laughs> lean in.
1: <laughs> N- nudging slightly. But this is way harder in all the virtual s- group sessions that we're mm. currently having, right? Yeah. So to me, this was easier, or it is easier if I have a room full of people because then I read all their body language and you could even smell all the adrenaline in there or whatever, whatever cortisol maybe as well. And that is way harder if we do virtual to um, sessions. So I cannot see um, what they're doing with at least 50% of their body, so to say. And with most of them muted, sometimes even some off camera. Yeah. It's way harder to, to, to read a group at least. Yeah.
0: From me. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we've got some senses that are dulled, because we certainly can't feel. Like I can feel the AC vent hitting me right now, but no one else feels that. Like I'm in a room that's different from everyone else. I also can't, like you say, I'm smelling different things. I'm even hearing some slightly different things because even though we're connected via this technology. I've got a completely different computer that might have a completely different grounding issue that's buzzing in my ear or whatever. We all have these like different things, right, that influence how how we show up and how we see. But not only the dulling of the senses, but we also have this dispersion there's something happening in chats there's this over here there's people in the mural over here yeah so yeah you're right if the one-on-one is almost comparable you know yeah one-on-one is much yeah much easier to deal with it right but um totally agree group is group is much harder
1: yeah group is much harder the bigger it gets the harder it is
0: (laughs) yeah you know the thing is is we just bring more people because the Specifically, handle the dispersion of the signals. So, if we've got different people observing different signals, so, okay, you're watching the chats and the handling the breakout rooms, I'm just dealing with content and watching the videos, you know, that, yeah. can, that can help, right? But
1: yeah. More than one facilitator.
0: Don't always have that luxury. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not always. <laughs> but I do this as well. So, in some of my sessions, I have another person, yeah, observing the room. Well, I'm doing most of the talking.
0: Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's like, I feel like there's so much potential that the software still hasn't quite gotten to, you know. There's a plugin or a separate UI for Zoom called Macro I found really fascinating. Mm. Basically, it would make everyone in the room's avatar or video size proportional to the amount of time they spent talking in the session.
1: Oh, that is interesting.
0: Which is a nice visual cue.
1: Yeah, but the, the question is, what does this to the introverts? <laughs>
0: right, right. Does it make them feel worse about the fact? that they been Yeah, concerned?
1: maybe, maybe it right. is.
0: <laughs> right, right. It's like I just feel like there's there's a lot of untapped potential as yeah. far as like bringing those signals together in a way that the facilitator and everyone else can can just be aware of some of the dynamics that are happening.
1: Yeah, and it is a bit of a Zoom maturity issue as well, on the other hand, or Teams or whatever software my customers are using, because some of them are super familiar with all these tools, are so used to the sessions and actually facilitating something with a group like that. Super easy, just did a summer elective, the last humans uh, for executive MBA students and all of their studies are actually happening online. So they were so used to it and they knew each other as a group way easier than facilitating for super old far German corporate clients that are actually not so used to all these virtual worlds. Yeah, that makes a big difference as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is kind of coming up on the end here. And I just want to give us an opportunity to close out with a final thought. So curious if you have anything that's kind of still with you that you think that our listeners might want to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. Think about your invitations. That is maybe something. So are you inviting people to the conversation? Often enough, are you asking the right question? So it really helped me to compile a list of coaching questions that I really like asking. So find your right question. For example, I really love this question of what will you be doing differently once the session is over? And so, yeah, I have this top 20 <laughs> questions, so to say, and that is something that helped me a lot to get better in my 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 coaching and in my facilitation as well. So favorite questions is maybe something to yeah put in a journal.
0: I love that. We always refer to the questions as the Swiss Army knife for facilitation. So <laughs> I love that you have yeah. your top 20 questions and maybe that's a... That's such a great piece of advice. Everyone should go do that. So thanks a bunch, Petra. It's been a real fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. It
1: was fun, yeah. You know,
0: bummed that we have to end it.
1: Yeah, it's a pity. Now I can enjoy the thunderstorms behind me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for those that have been listening in, it's been fun watching the video here as we've been chatting (laughs) with the thunder in the background. It's kind of spooky.
1: I will now go on the balcony and enjoy some more of it, maybe.
0: (laughs) Excellent. All righty. Well, again, it was such a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. Voltagecontrol.com.